Chapter 6 of Monica. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Monica by Evelyn Everett Green. In Peril. Perhaps there is some truth in what Monica had said about her ability to presage coming trouble. At least she was haunted just now by a strange shadow of approaching change that future events justified only too well. She often caught her father's glance resting upon her with a strange searching wistfulness, with something almost of pleading and appeal in his face. She had a suspicion that Arthur sometimes looked at her almost in the same way, as if he too would ask some favor of her, could he but bring his mind to do so. She felt that she was watched by all the household, that something was expected of her, and was awaited with a sort of subdued expectancy. But the nature of this service she had not fathomed, and greatly shrank from attempting to do so. She told herself many times that she would do anything for those she loved, that no sacrifice would be too great, which should add to or secure their happiness, but she did not fully understand what was expected of her, only some instinct told her that it was in some way connected with Randolph Trevelyan. Sir Conrad Fitzgerald came from time to time to the castle. He was cordially received by the Earl and Lady Diana, who had respected and liked his parents, and remembered him well as a fair-haired boy, the childish playfellows and friend of Monica and Arthur. Old feelings of intimacy sprang up anew after the lapse of time. It seemed as if he had hardly been more than a year or two away. It was difficult to realize that the young man was practically an entire stranger of whose history they were absolutely ignorant. Monica felt the change most by a certain instinctive and involuntary shrinking from Conrad that she could not in the least explain or justify. She wished to like him, she told herself that she did like him, and yet she was aware that she never felt at ease in his presence, and that he inspired her with a certain indescribable sense of repulsion, which oddly enough was shared by her four-footed friends, the dogs. Monica had a theory of her own that dogs brought up much in human society became excellent judges of character, but if so, she ought certainly to modify some of her own opinions, for the dogs all adored Randolph and welcomed him effusively whenever he appeared. But they shrank back sullenly when Conrad attempted to make advances, and no effort on his part conquered their instinctive aversion. Conrad himself observed this, and it annoyed him. He greatly resented Randolph's protracted stay at the castle, and he detested, above all things, the necessity of encountering him. "'How long is that fellow going to palm himself upon your father's hospitality?' he asked Monica one day, with some appearance of anger. He had encountered Randolph and the Earl in the park as he came up, and he was aware that the cold formality of the greeting which passed between them had not been lost upon the keen observation of the latter." I call it detestable taste hanging on here as he does. When is he leaving? I do not know. Father enjoys his company, and so does Arthur. I have not heard anything about his going yet. Perhaps you enjoy his company too, suggested Conrad with a touch of insolence in his manner. A faint flush rose in Monica's pale face. Her look expressed a good deal of cool scorn. Perhaps I do, she answered. Conrad saw at once that he had made a blunder, face and voice alike changed, and he said in his gentle, deprecating way, Forgive me, Monica, I had no right to speak as I did. 
It was rude and unjustifiable. Only if you knew as much as I do about that fellow, you would not wonder that I hate to see him hanging round you as he is doing now, waiting, as it were, to step into the place that is his by legal, but by no moral right. It would be hard to see anyone acting such a part. It is ten times harder when you know your man. Monica looked straight at Conrad. What do you know about Mr. Treblin? My father is acquainted with all his past history and can learn nothing to his discredit. What story have you got hold of? I would rather hear facts than hints. Conrad laughed uneasily. I know he's a cad and a sneak and a spy, but I have no wish to upset your father's confidence in him. We were at Oxford together, and of course it was not pleasant to me to hear his boasting of his future lordship at Trevlin. That was the first thing that made me dislike him. Later on I had fresh cause. Had Monica been more conversant with the family history, she would have known that this boasting could never have taken place, as Randolph had been far enough from the peerage at that time. As it was, she looked grave and a little severe as she asked, Did he do that? and listened with instinctive repugnance to the details fabricated by the inventive genius of Conrad. He next cleverly alluded again to his past follies, and appealed to Monica's generosity not to change towards him because he had sinned. It is so hard to feel cast off by old friends, he said, with a very expressive look at the girl. I know what it is to see myself cold-shouldered by those to whom I have learned to look up with reverence and affection. I have suffered very much from misrepresentation and hardness, suffered beyond what I deserve. I did fall once, I was sorely tempted, and I did commit one act of ingratitude and deceit that I have most bitterly repented of. I was very young and sorely tempted, and I did something which might have placed me in the felon stock, and would have done so had somebody not far away had his will. But I was forgiven by the man I had injured, and I have tried my utmost since to make atonement for the past. The hardest part of all has been to see myself scorned and condemned by those whose good will I most wish to win. Sometimes I have known sorrow that has been akin to despair. I have been met with coldness and disdain when I most needed help and sympathy. Monica, you will not help to push me back into the abyss? You will not help to make me think that repentance is in vain? She looked at him very seriously, her eyes full of a sort of thoughtful surprise. I, Conrad, what have I to do with it or with you? This much, he answered, taking her hand and looking straight into her eyes. This much, Monica, that nothing so helps a man who has fallen once as the friendship of a noble woman like yourself. Nothing hurts him more than her ill will or distrust. Give me your friendship, and I will make myself worthy of it. Turn your back coldly upon me, and I shall feel doomed to despair. We have been friends all our lives, Conrad, said Monica, with gentle seriousness. You know that if I could help you in the way you mean, I should like to do so. You will not change, you will not turn your back upon me, whatever he may say of me? She looked at him steadily and answered, No. You promise, Monica? There is no need for that, Conrad. When I say a thing, I mean it. We are friends, and I do not change without sufficient reason. He saw that he had said enough. He raised her hand to his lips and kissed it once with a humility and reverence that could not offend her. Monica wandered down by the lonely cliff path to the shore, revolving many thoughts in her mind, feeling strangely absorbed and abstracted. 
The wind blew fresh and strong off the sea. The tide rolled in fast, salt, and strong. Monica felt that she wanted to be alone today, alone with the great wild ocean that she loved so well, even whilst she feared it, too, in its fiercer moods. She therefore made her way with the agility and sure-footed steadiness of long practice over a number of great boulders and along a jutting ledge of rock that stretched a considerable distance out to sea, a sunken reef that had brought to destruction many a hapless fisherman's craft and more than one stately vessel. At high tide it was covered, but it would not be high water for some hours yet, and Monica, in her restless state of mental tension, had forgotten that the high spring tides were lashing the sea to fury just now upon this iron-bound coast, rendered more swift and strong and high by the steady way in which the wind set towards the land. Standing on the great flat rock at the end of the sunken reef, a rock that was never covered even at the highest tides, Monica was soon lost in so profound a reverie that time flew by unheeded, and only when the giant waves began to throw their spray about her feet as they dashed up against the rock did she suddenly rouse up to the consciousness that for once in her life she had forgotten herself, and forgotten the uncertain temper of her tyrant playfellow, and had allowed her retreat to be cut off. She looked round her quietly and steadily, not frightened but fully conscious of her danger. The reef was already covered. It would be impossible to retrace her footsteps with the waves dashing wildly over the sunken rocks. Monica was a bold and practiced swimmer, but to swim ashore in a heavy sea, such as was now running, was obviously out of the question. To stand upon that lonely rock until the tide fell again was a feat of strength and endurance almost equally impossible. Her best chance lay in being seen from the shore and rescued. Someone might pass that way or even come in search of her. Only the daylight was already failing and would soon be gone. Monica looked round her, awed yet calm, understanding without realizing the deadly peril in which she stood. There was always a boat, her little boat, lying at anchor in the bay ready for her use at any moment. Her eyes turned towards it instinctively, and as they did so she became aware of something bobbing up and down in the water. The head of a swimmer, as she saw the next moment, swimming out towards her boat. Someone must have seen her then, and as all the fishing smacks were out, and there was no way of reaching the anchored boat, save by swimming, had elected to run some personal risk rather than waste precious time in seeking aid further afield. A glow of gratitude towards her courageous rescuer filled Monica's heart, and this did not diminish as she saw the difficulty he had first in reaching the boat, then in casting it loose, and last but not least in guiding and pushing it towards an uncovered rock and in getting in. But this difficult and perilous office was accomplished in safety at last, and the boat was quickly rowed over the heaving, angry waves to the spot where Monica stood alone amid the tossing waste of water. Nearer and nearer came the tiny craft, and Monica experienced an odd sensation of mingled surprise and dismay as she recognized in her preserver none other than Randolph Trevlin. But it was not a time in which speeches could be made or thanks spoken. To bring the boat up to the rock in the midst of the rolling breakers was a task of no little difficulty and danger, and had not Randolph been experienced from boyhood in matters pertaining to the sea, he could not possibly have accomplished the feat unaided and alone. There was no bungling on Monica's part either, with steady nerve and quiet courage, she awaited the moment for the downward spring. 
It made at exactly the right second. The boat swayed, but righted itself immediately. Randolph had the head round in a moment away from the dangerous rock. In ten minutes they had reached the shore and had landed upon the beach. Not a word had been spoken all that time. Monica had given Randolph one expressive glance as she took her seat in the boat, and that is all that had so far passed between them. When, however, he gave her his hand to help her disembark, and they stood together on the shingle, she said, very seriously and gently, It was very kind of you to come out to me, Mr. Trevlin. I think I should have been drowned but for you. And she turned her eyes seaward with a gaze that was utterly inscrutable. He looked at her a moment intently, and then stooped and picked up his overcoat, which lay beside his pilot jacket and boots, upon the stones. Will you oblige me by putting on this in place of your own wet jacket? You are drenched with spray. She woke up from her reverie then, and looked up quickly, doing as he asked without a word, but when she had donned the warm protecting garment, she said, You are drenched to the skin yourself. Yes, so a garment more or less is of no consequence. Now walk on, please. Do not wait for me. I will be after you in two minutes. Again she did his bidding in the same dreamy way and walked on towards the ascent by the steep cliff path. He was not long in following her, and they walked in almost unbroken silence to the castle. When they reached the portal, Monica paused and raised her eyes once more to his face. You have saved my life today, she said. I am, I think I am, very grateful to you. Arthur's excitement and delight when he heard of the adventure were very great. So he saved you, Monica, at the risk of his life. Ah, that just proves it. Proves what? Why, that he is in love with you, of course, just as he ought to be, and will marry you some day, make us all happy, and keep us all at Trevlin. What could be more delightful and appropriate? A wave of color swept over Monica's face. You are a foolish boy, Arthur. I am not a foolish boy, he answered exultingly. I know what I am saying. Randolph does love you. I can see it more plainly every day. He loves you with all his heart, and some day, soon, he will ask you to be his wife. Of course you will say yes. You must like him, I am sure, as much as everyone else does, and then everything will come right, and we shall be perfectly happy. Things always do come right in the end, if we will only but believe it. Monica sat very still, a strange, dreamlike feeling stealing over her. Arthur's playful words shed a sudden flood of light upon much that had been dark before, and for a moment she was blinded and dazzled. Randolph Trevlin loved her? Yes, she could well believe it, little as she knew of love. Thinking of the glance bent upon her not long ago, which had thrilled her then, she knew not why. Monica trembled, yet she was dimly conscious of a strange undercurrent of startled joy beneath the troubled waters of doubt, despondency, and perplexity. She could not understand herself, nor read her heart aright, yet it seemed as if through the lifting of the clouds she obtained a rapid passing glimpse of a land of golden sunshine beyond, whither her face and footsteps alike were turned, as a traveler amid the mountain mists see before him now and again the bright sunny smiling valley beneath which he will shortly reach. The land of promise was spreading itself out already before Monica's eyes, and a dim perception in her heart was telling her that this was so. Yet the sandy desert path still lay before her for a while, for, like many others, her eyes were partially blinded, and she turned from the direct way and wandered still for a while in the arid waste. 
She lacked the faith to grasp the promise, but it was shining before her all the while, and in her heart of hearts she felt it, though she could not yet grasp the truth. End of chapter 6, read by Bryce Cries, Youngstown.